0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The Republic by Plato. Translated by Benjamin
1: Jowett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Neufeld. Persons of the Dialogue Socrates, who is the narrator, Glaucon, Adamantus, Polemarchus, Cephalus, Thrasymachus, and Clytophon, and others who are mute auditors. The scene is laid in the house of Cephalus at the Piraeus, and the whole dialogue is narrated by Socrates, the day after it actually took place, to Timaeus, himocrates Critius, and a nameless person, who are introduced in the Timaeus. Book I I went down yesterday to the Piraeus with Glaucon, the son of Ariston, that I might offer up my prayers to the goddess, and also, because I wanted to see in what manner they would celebrate the festival, which was a new thing. I was delighted with the procession of the inhabitants, but that of the Thracians was equally, if not more, beautiful. When we had finished our prayers and viewed the spectacle, we turned in the direction of the city, and at that instant Polemarchus, the son of Cephalus, chanced to catch sight of us from a distance as we were starting on our way home and told his servant to run and bid us wait for him the servant took hold of me by the cloak behind and said "Polymarchus desires you to wait i turned round and asked him where his master was there he is said the youth coming after you if you will only wait certainly we will said glaucon and in a few minutes Polymarchus appeared and with him Atamantus, glaucon's brother Niceratus the son of Nicias, and several others who had been at the procession. Polemarchus said to me, I perceive, Socrates, that you and your companion are already on your way to the city. You are not far wrong, I said. But do you see, he rejoined, how many we are? Of course. And are you stronger than all these? For if not, you will have to remain where you are. May there not be an alternative, I said, THAT WE MAY PERSUADE YOU TO LET US GO?' "'But can you persuade us if we refuse to listen to you?' he said. "'Certainly not,' replied Glaucon. "'Then we are not going to listen, of that you may be assured.' Adamantus added, "'Has no place told you of the torch-race on horseback in honor of the goddess which will take place in the evening?' "'With horses,' I replied. "'That is a novelty.' Will horsemen carry torches and pass them one to another during the race? Yes, said Polymarchus, and not only so, but a festival will be celebrated at night, which you certainly ought to see. Let us rise soon after supper and see this festival. There will be a gathering of young men, and we will have a good talk. Stay then, and do not be perverse. Glaucon said, I suppose, since you insist, that we must. "'Very good,' I replied. "'Accordingly we went with Polymarchus to his house, and there we found his brothers, Lysias and Ethodemus, and with them Trasymachus the Chalcedonian, Carmanthides the Paean, and Clytopha the son of Aristonimus. There, too, was Cephalus the father of Polymarchus, whom I had not seen for a long time, and I thought him very much aged.' He was seated on a cushioned chair, and had a garland on his head, for he had been sacrificing in the court, and there were some other chairs in the room, arranged in a semicircle, upon which we sat down by him. He saluted me eagerly, and then he said, "'You don't come to see me, Socrates, as often as you ought. If I were still able to go and see you, I would not ask you to come to me, but—' At my age i can hardly get to the city and therefore you should come oftener to the piraeus for let me tell you that the more the pleasures of the body fade away the greater to me is the pleasure and charm of conversation do not then deny my request but make our house your resort and keep company with these young men we are old friends and you will be quite at home with us i replied there is nothing which for my part i like better cephalus than conversing with aged men for i regard them as travellers who have gone on a journey which i too may have to go and of whom i ought to inquire whether the way is smooth and easy or rugged and difficult and this is a question which i should like to ask of you who have arrived at that time which the poets call the threshold of old age is life harder towards the end or what report do you give of it i will tell you socrates he said what my own feeling is men of my age flock together we are birds of a feather as the old proverb says and at our meetings the tale of my acquaintance commonly is i cannot eat i cannot drink the pleasures of youth and love are fled away There was a good time once, but now that is gone, and life is no longer life. Some complain of the slights which are put upon them by relations, and they will tell you sadly of how many evils their old age is the cause. But to me, Socrates, these complainers seem to blame that which is not really in fault. For if old age were the cause, I too, being old, and every other old man, would have felt as they do but this is not my own experience nor that of others whom i have known how well i remember the aged poet sophocles when in answer to the question how does love suit with age sophocles are you still the man you were peace he replied most gladly have i escaped the thing of which you speak i feel as if i had escaped from a mad and furious master his words have often occurred to my mind since and they seem as good to me now as at the time when he uttered them. For certainly old age has a great sense of calm and freedom. When the passions relax their hold, then, as Sophocles says, we are freed from the grasp not of one mad master only, but of many. The truth is, Socrates, that these regrets, and also the complaints about relations, are to be attributed to the same cause which is not old age but men's characters and tempers for he who is of a calm and happy nature will hardly feel the pressure of age but to him who is of an opposite disposition youth and age are equally a burden i listened in admiration and wanting to draw him out that he might go on yes cephalus i said but i rather suspect that people in general are not convinced by you when you speak thus they think that old age sits lightly upon you not because of your happy disposition but because you are rich and wealth is well known to be a great comforter you are right he replied they are not convinced and there is something in what they say not however so much as they imagine i might answer them as themistocles answered the seraphian who was abusing him and saying that he was famous not for his own merits but because he was an athenian if you had been a native of my country or i of yours neither of us would have been famous and to those who are not rich and are impatient of old age the same reply may be made for to the good poor man old age cannot be a light burden, nor can a bad rich man ever have peace with himself. May I ask, Cephalus, whether your fortune was for the most part inherited or acquired by you? Acquired, Socrates. Do you want to know how much I acquired? In the art of making money I have been midway between my father and grandfather, for my grandfather whose name I bear, doubled and trebled the value of his patrimony, that which he inherited being much what I possess now. But my father, Lysanias, reduced the property below what it is at present, and I shall be satisfied if I leave to these my sons not less, but a little more than I received. "'That was why I asked you the question,' I replied, "'because, I see that you are indifferent about money, which is a characteristic rather of those who have inherited their fortunes than of those who have acquired them. The makers of fortunes have a second love of money as a creation of their own, resembling the affection of authors for their own poems, or of parents for their children, besides that natural love of it for the sake of use and profit which is common to them and all men. And hence they are very bad company for they can talk about nothing but the praises of wealth.' "'That is true,' he said. "'Yes, that is very true. But may I ask you another question? What do you consider to be the greatest blessing which you have reaped from your wealth?' "'One,' he said, of which I could not expect easily to convince others. For let me tell you, Socrates, that when a man thinks himself to be near death, fears and cares into his mind which he never had before the tales of a world below and the punishment which is exacted there of deeds done here were once a laughing matter to him but now he is tormented with the thought that they may be true either from the weakness of age or because he is now drawing near to that other place he has a clearer view of these things Suspicions and alarms crowd thickly upon him, and he begins to reflect and consider what wrongs he has done to others, and when he finds that the sum of his transgressions is great, he will many a time, like a child, start up in his sleep for fear, and he is filled with dark forebodings. But to him who is conscious of no sin, sweet hope, as Pindar charmingly says, is the kind nurse of his age hope he says cherishes the soul of him who lives in justice and holiness and is the nurse of his age and the companion of his journey hope which is mightiest to sway the restless soul of man how admirable are his words and the great blessing of riches i do not say to every man but to a good man is that he has had no occasion to deceive or to defraud others either intentionally or unintentionally and when he departs to the world below he is not in any apprehension about offerings due to the gods or debts which he owes to men now to this peace of mind the possession of wealth greatly contributes and therefore i say that setting one thing against another of the many advantages which wealth has to give to a man of sense this is in my opinion the greatest well said cephalus i replied but as concerning justice what is it to speak the truth and to pay your debts no more than this and even to this are there not exceptions suppose that a friend when in his right mind has deposited arms with me and he asks for them when he is not in his right mind ought i to give them back to him no one would say that i ought or that i should be right in doing so any more than they would say that i ought always to speak the truth to one who is in his condition you are quite right he replied but then i said speaking the truth and paying your debts is not a correct definition of justice quite correct socrates if simonides is to be believed said polemarchus interposing i fear said cephalus that I must go now, for I have to look after the sacrifices, and I hand over the argument to Polymarchus and the company.' "'Is not Polymarchus your heir?' I said. "'To be sure,' he answered, and went away, laughing to the sacrifices. "'Tell me, then, O thou heir of the argument, what did Simonides say, and according to you truly say, about justice?' He said that the repayment of a debt is just, and in saying so he appears to me to be right. I should be sorry to doubt the word of such a wise and inspired man, but his meaning, though probably clear to you, is the reverse of clear to me, for he certainly does not mean, as we were just now saying, that I ought to return a deposit of arms or of anything else to one who asks for it when he is not in his right senses and yet a deposit cannot be denied to be a debt true then when the person who asks me is not in his right mind i am by no means to make the return certainly not when simonides said that the repayment of a debt was justice he did not mean to include that case certainly not for he thinks that a friend ought always to do good to a friend and never evil "'You mean that the return of a deposit of gold, which is to the injury of the receiver, if the two parties are friends, is not the repayment of a debt? That is what you would imagine him to say?' "'Yes.' "'And are enemies also to receive what we owe to them?' "'To be sure,' he said. "'They are to receive what we owe them, and an enemy, as I take it, owes to an enemy that which is due or proper to him, that is to say, evil.' Simonides, then, after the manner of poets, would seem to have spoken darkly of the nature of justice, for he really meant to say that justice is the giving to each man what is proper to him, and this he termed a debt. That must have been his meaning, he said. By heaven, I replied, and if we asked him what due or proper thing is given by medicine and to whom, what answer do you think that he would make to us? he would surely reply that medicine gives drugs and meat and drink to human bodies and what due or proper thing is given by cookery and to what seasoning to food and what is that which justice gives and to whom if socrates we are to be guided at all by the analogy of the preceding instances then justice is the art which gives good to friends and evil to enemies that is his meaning then I think so. And who is best able to do good to his friends and evil to his enemies in time of sickness? The physician. Or when they are on a voyage amid the perils of the sea? The pilot. And in what sort of actions, or with a view to what results, is the just man most able to do harm to his enemy and good to his friend? In going to war against the one and in making alliances with the other? But when a man is well my dear polemarchus there is no need of a physician no and he who is not on a voyage has no need of a pilot no then in time of peace justice will be of no use i am very far from thinking so you think that justice may be of use in peace as well as in war yes like husbandry for the acquisition of corn yes OR LIKE SHOEMAKING FOR THE ACQUISITION OF SHOES, THAT IS WHAT YOU MEAN? YES. AND WHAT SIMILAR USE OR POWER OF ACQUISITION HAS JUSTICE IN TIME OF PEACE? IN CONTRACTS, SOCRATES, JUSTICE IS OF USE. AND BY CONTRACTS YOU MEAN PARTNERSHIPS? EXACTLY. BUT IS THE JUST MAN OR THE SKILLFUL PLAYER A MORE USEFUL AND BETTER PARTNER AT THE GAME OF DRAFTS? THE SKILLFUL PLAYER. And in the laying of bricks and stones is the just man a more useful or better partner than the builder? Or well, quite the reverse. Then in what sort of partnership is the just man a better partner than the harp player, as in playing the harp, the harp player is certainly a better partner than the just man. In a money partnership? Yes, Polymarchus, but surely not in the use of money, for you do not want a just man to be your counsellor in the purchase or sale of a horse. A man who is knowing about horses would be better for that, would he not? Certainly. And when you want to buy a ship, the shipwright or the pilot would be better? True. Then what is that joint use of silver or gold in which the just man is to be preferred? When you want a deposit to be kept safely. You mean when money is not wanted but allowed to lie? Precisely. That is to say, justice is useful when money is useless that is the inference. And when you want to keep a pruning-hook safe, then justice is useful to the individual and to the state. But when you want to use it, then the art of the vine-dresser. Clearly. And when you want to keep a shield or a lyre and not to use them, you would say that justice is useful. But when you want to use them, then the art of the soldier or of the musician. Certainly. And so, of all other things, justice is useful when they are useless, and useless when they are useful, that is the inference. Then justice is not good for much. But let us consider this further point. Is not he who can best strike a blow in a boxing match or in any kind of fighting best able to ward off a blow? Certainly. And he who is most skilful in preventing or escaping from a disease is best able to create one. True. And he is the best guard of a camp who is best able to steal a march upon the enemy. Certainly. Then he who is a good keeper of anything is also a good thief. That, I suppose, is to be inferred. Then, if the just man is good at keeping money, he is good at stealing it. That is implied in the argument. Then, after all, the just man has turned out to be a thief and this is a lesson which i suspect you must have learnt out of homer for he speaking of autolycus the maternal grandfather of odysseus who is a favourite of his affirms that he was excellent above all men in theft and perjury and so you and homer and simonides are agreed that justice is an art of theft to be practised however for the good of friends and for the harm of enemies That was what you were saying? No, certainly not that, though I do not know now what I did say, but I still stand by the latter words. Well, there is another question. By friends and enemies do we mean those who are so really or only in seeming? Surely, he said, a man may be expected to love those whom he thinks good and to hate those whom he thinks evil yes but do not persons often err about good and evil many who are not good seem to be so and conversely that is true then to them the good will be enemies and the evil will be their friends true and in that case they will be right in doing good to the evil and evil to the good clearly but the good are just and would not do an injustice true then according to your argument it is just to injure those who do no wrong nay socrates the the doctrine is immoral then i suppose that we ought to do good to the just and harm to the unjust i like that better but see the consequence many a man who is ignorant of human nature has friends who are bad friends and in that case he ought to do harm to them and he has good enemies whom he ought to benefit but if so, we shall be saying the very opposite of that which we affirmed to be the meaning of Simonides.' "'Very true,' he said, and I think that we had better correct an error into which we seem to have fallen in the use of the words friend and enemy.' "'What was the error, Polemarchus?' I asked. "'We assumed that he is a friend who seems to be, or who is thought, good. And how is the error to be corrected?' We should rather say that he is a friend who is as well as seems good, and that he who seems only, and is not good, only seems to be and is not a friend, and of an enemy the same may be said. You would argue that the good are our friends and the bad our enemies? Yes. And instead of saying simply, as we did at first, that it is just to do good to our friends and harm to our enemies, we should further say, It is just to do good to our friends when they are good, and harm to our enemies when they are evil. Yes, that appears to me to be the truth. But ought the just to injure any one at all? Undoubtedly he ought to injure those who are both wicked and his enemies. When horses are injured, are they improved or deteriorated? The latter. Deteriorated, that is to say, in the good qualities of horses, not of dogs. Yes, of horses. And dogs are deteriorated in the good qualities of dogs and not of horses? Of course. And will not men who are injured be deteriorated in that which is the proper virtue of man? Certainly. And that human virtue is justice? To be sure. Then men who are injured are of necessity made unjust? That is the result. But can the musician by his art make men unmusical? Oh, certainly not or the horseman by his art make them bad horsemen impossible and can the just by justice make men unjust or speaking generally can the good by virtue make them bad assuredly oh, not any more than heat can produce cold it cannot or drought moisture clearly not nor can the good harm any one impossible and the just is the good certainly then to injure a friend or any one else is not the act of a just man but of the opposite who is the unjust i think that what you say is quite true socrates then if a man says that justice consists in the repayment of debts and that good is the debt which a just man owes to his friends and evil the debt which he owes to his enemies to say this is not wise for it is not true if, as has been clearly shown, the injuring of another can be in no case just. "'I agree with you,' said Polemarchus. "'Then you and I are prepared to take up arms against anyone who attributes such a saying to Simonides, or Bias, or Pittacus or any other wise man or seer. I am quite ready to do battle at your side,' he said. "'Shall I tell you whose I believe the saying to be?' "'Whose?' "'I believe that Periander, or Perdiccas or Xerxes or Ismenius the Theban, or some other rich and mighty man, who had a great opinion of his own power, was the first to say that justice is doing good to your friends and harm to your enemies.' "'Most true,' he said. "'Yes,' I said, "'but if this definition of justice also breaks down, What other can be offered? Several times in the course of the discussion Thrasymachus had made an attempt to get the argument into his own hands, and had been put down by the rest of the company who wanted to hear the end, but when Polemarchus and I had done speaking and there was a pause, he could no longer hold his peace, and gathering himself up, he came at us like a wild beast seeking to devour us. We were quite panic-stricken at the sight of him he roared out to the whole company what folly socrates has taken possession of you all and why silly billies do you knock under to one another i say that if you want really to know what justice is you should not only ask but answer and you should not seek honour to yourself from the refutation of an opponent but have your own answer for there is many a one who can ask and cannot answer and now i will not have you say that justice is duty or advantage or profit or gain or interest for this sort of nonsense will not do for me i must have clearness and accuracy i was panic-stricken at his words and could not look at him without trembling indeed i believe that if i had not fixed my eye upon him i should have been struck dumb but when I saw his fury rising I looked at him first, and was therefore able to reply to him. "'Thrasymachus,' I said, with a quiver, "'don't be hard upon us. Polymarchus and I may have been guilty of a little mistake in the argument, but I can assure you that the error was not intentional. If we were seeking for a piece of gold you would not imagine that we were knocking under to one another, and so losing our chance of finding it. And why? when we are seeking for justice, a thing more precious than many pieces of gold, do you say that we are weakly yielding to one another, and not doing our utmost to get at the truth? Nay, my good friend, we are most willing and anxious to do so. But the fact is that we cannot. And if so, you people who know all things should pity us, and not be angry with us. How characteristic of Socrates!' he replied with a bitter laugh that's your ironical style did i not foresee have i not already told you that whatever he was asked he would refuse to answer and try irony or any other shuffle in order that he might avoid answering you are a philosopher thrasymachus i replied and well know that if you ask a person what numbers make up twelve taking care to prohibit him whom you ask from answering twice six or three times four or six times two or four times three for this sort of nonsense will not do for me then obviously if that is your way of putting the question no one can answer you but suppose that he were to retort thrasymachus what do you mean if one of these numbers which you interdict be the true answer to the question am i falsely to say some other number which is not the right one "'Is that your meaning? How would you answer him? Just as if the two cases were at all alike,' he said. Well, "'Why should they not be?' I replied. "'And even if they are not, but only appear to be so to the person who is asked, ought he not to say what he thinks, whether you and I forbid him or not?' "'I presume, then, that you are going to make one of the interdicted answers.' I dare say that I may, notwithstanding the danger, if upon reflection I approve of any of them. But what if I give you an answer about justice other and better, he said, than any of these? What do you deserve to have done to you?' "'Done to me! As becomes the ignorant, I must learn from the wise. That is what I deserve to have done to me.' "'What, and no payments? A pleasant notion!' i will pay when i have the money i replied but you have socrates said glaucon and you thrasymachus need to be under no anxiety about money for we will all make a contribution for socrates yes he replied and then socrates will do as he always does refuse to answer himself but take and pull to pieces the answer of some one else why my good friend i said how can any one answer who knows and says that he knows just nothing and who even if he has some faint notions of his own is told by a man of authority not to utter them the natural thing is that the speaker should be some one like yourself who professes to know and can tell what he knows will you then kindly answer for the edification of the company and of myself glaucon and the rest of the company joined in my request And Thrasymachus, as any one might see, was in reality eager to speak, for he thought that he had an excellent answer and would distinguish himself. But at first he affected to insist on my answering. At length he consented to begin. Behold, he said, the wisdom of Socrates. It refuses to teach himself and goes about learning of others, to whom he never even says thank you. "'That I learn of others,' I replied, is quite true, but that I am ungrateful I wholly deny. Money I have none, and therefore I pay in praise, which is all I have. And how ready I am to praise anyone who appears to me to speak well, you will very soon find out when you answer, for I expect that you will answer well.' "'Listen, then,' he said.' I proclaim that justice is nothing else than the interest of the stronger. And now why do you not praise me? But of course you won't. Let me first understand you, I replied. Justice, as you say, is the interest of the stronger. What, Thrasymachus, is the meaning of this? You cannot mean to say that because Polydamus, the Pancratius, is stronger than we are, and finds the eating of beef conducive to his bodily strength, that to eat beef is therefore equally for our good who are weaker than he is, and right and just for us. That's abominable of you, Socrates. You take the words in the sense which is most damaging to the argument.' "'Not at all, my good sir,' I said. "'I am trying to understand them, and I wish that you would be a little clearer.' "'Well, He said have you never heard that forms of government differ there are tyrannies and there are democracies and there are aristocracies yes i know and the government is the ruling power in each state certainly and the different forms of government make laws democratical aristocratical tyrannical with a view to their several interests and these laws which are made by them for their own interests are the justice which they deliver to their subjects, and him who transgresses them they punish as a breaker of the law and unjust. And that is what I mean when I say that in all states there is the same principle of justice, which is the interest of the government, and as the government must be supposed to have power, the only reasonable conclusion is that everywhere there is one principle of justice, which is the interest of the stronger. Now I understand you, I said, and whether you are right or not I will try to discover. But let me remark that in defining justice you have yourself used the word interest, which you forbade me to use. It is true, however, that in your definition the words of the stronger are added. A small addition you must allow, he said. Great or small, never mind about that. We must first inquire whether what you are saying is the truth. Now, we are both agreed that justice is interest of some sort, but you go on to say, of the stronger. About this addition I am not so sure, and must therefore consider further. Proceed. I will. And first, tell me, do you admit that it is just for subjects to obey their rulers? I do. But are the rulers of states absolutely infallible? "'or are they sometimes liable to err? "'To be sure,' he replied, "'they are likely to err. "'Then in making their laws "'they may sometimes make them rightly "'and sometimes not?' "'True. "'When they make them rightly, "'they make them agreeable to their interest. "'When they are mistaken, "'contrary to their interest. "'You admit that?' "'Yes. "'And the laws which they make "'must be obeyed by their subjects, "'and that is what you call justice.' Doubtless. Then justice, according to your argument, is not only obedience to the interest of the stronger, but the reverse. What is that you are saying? he asked. I am only repeating what you are saying, I believe. But let us consider. Have we not admitted that the rulers may be mistaken about their own interest in what they command, and also that to obey them is justice? Has not that been admitted? Yes then you must also have acknowledged justice not to be for the interest of the stronger, when the rulers intentionally command things to be done which are to their own injury. For if, as you say, justice is the obedience which the subject renders to their commands, in that case, O wisest of men, is there any escape from the conclusion that the weaker are commanded to do not what is for the interest, but what is for the injury of the stronger? "'Nothing can be clearer, Socrates,' said "Polymarchus, "'Yes,' said Clytophon, interposing, "'if you are allowed to be his witness.' "'But there is no need of any witness,' said Polymarchus. "'for Thrasymachus himself acknowledges "'that rulers may sometimes command "'what is not for their own interest, "'and that for subjects to obey them is justice.' "'Yes, Polemarchus, Thrasymachus said "'that for subjects to do what was commanded "'by their rulers is just.' Yes, Clytophon, but he also said that justice is the interest of the stronger, and while admitting both these propositions he further acknowledged that the stronger may command the weaker who are his subjects to do what is not for his own interest, whence follows that justice is the injury quite as much as the interest of the stronger. But, said Clytophon, he meant by the interest of the stronger what the stronger thought to be his interest. "'This is what the weaker had to do, and this was affirmed by him to be justice.' "'Those were not his words,' rejoined Polymarchus. "'Never mind,' I replied. "'If he now says that they are, let us accept his statement.' "'Tell me, Thrasymachus,' I said, "'did you mean by justice what the stronger thought to be his interest, "'whether really so or not?' Well, "'Certainly not,' he said. Do you suppose that I call him who is mistaken the stronger at the time when he is mistaken? Yes, I said, my impression was that you did so, when you admitted that the ruler was not infallible, but might be sometimes mistaken. You argue like an informer, Socrates. Do you mean, for example, that he who is mistaken about the sick is a physician in that he is mistaken? or that he who errs in arithmetic or grammar is an arithmetician or grammarian at the time when he is making the mistake in respect of the mistake true we say that the physician or arithmetician or grammarian has made a mistake but this is only a way of speaking for the fact is that neither the grammarian nor any other person of skill ever makes a mistake in so far as he is what his name implies they none of them err unless their skill fails them, and then they cease to be skilled artists. No artist or sage or ruler errs at the time when he is what his name implies, though he is commonly said to err, and I adopted the common mode of speaking. But to be perfectly accurate, since you are such a lover of accuracy, we should say that the ruler, in so far as he is a ruler, is unerring. And being unerring, always commands that which is for his own interest, and the subject is required to execute his commands. And therefore, as I said at first, and now repeat, justice is the interest of the stronger. Indeed, Thrasymachus, and do I really appear to you to argue like an informer? Certainly, he replied. And do you suppose that I ask these questions with any design of injuring you in the argument? Nay he replied, Suppose is not the word, I know it, but you will be found out, and by sheer force of argument you will never prevail. I shall not make the attempt, my dear man, but to avoid any misunderstanding occurring between us in future. Let me ask, in what sense do you speak of a ruler or stronger, whose interest, as you were saying, he being the superior, it is just that the inferior should execute? Is he a ruler in the popular or in the strict sense of the term? In the strictest of all senses, he said. And now cheat and play the informer, if you can. I ask no quarter at your hands. But you never will be able, never. And do you imagine, I said, that I am such a madman as to try and cheat, Thrasymachus? I might as well shave a lion. Why, he said, you made the attempt a minute ago, and you failed. "'Enough,' I said, "'of these civilities. "'It would be better that I should ask you a question. "'Is the physician, taken in that strict sense of which you were speaking, "'a healer of the sick or a maker of money? "'And remember that I am now speaking of the true physician?' "'A healer of the sick,' he replied. "'And the pilot, that is to say, the true pilot, "'is he a captain of sailors or a mere sailor?' "'A captain of sailors.' The circumstance that he sails in the ship is not to be taken into account, neither is he to be called a sailor. The name pilot, by which he is distinguished has nothing to do with sailing, but is significant of his skill and of his authority over the sailors.' "'Very true,' he said. "'Now,' I said, "'every art has an interest?' "'Certainly. For which the art has to consider and provide?' "'Yes, that is the aim of art.' and the interest of any art is the perfection of it, this and nothing else. What do you mean? I mean what I may illustrate negatively by the example of the body. Suppose you were to ask me whether the body is self-sufficing, or has wants. I should reply, certainly the body has wants, for the body may be ill and require to be cured, and has therefore interests to which the art of medicine ministers, and this is the origin and intention of medicine, as you will acknowledge. Am I right? Quite right, he replied. But is the art of medicine, or any other art, faulty or deficient in any quality, in the same way that the eye may be deficient in sight or the ear fail of hearing, and therefore requires another art to provide for the interests of seeing and hearing? Has art in itself, I say, any similar liability to fault or defect, and does every art require another supplementary art, To provide for its interests, and that another and another without end. Or have the arts to look only after their own interests? Or have they no need either of themselves or of another? Having no faults or defects, they have no need to correct them, either by the exercise of their own art or of any other. They have only to consider the interest of their subject matter. For every art remains pure and faultless while remaining true, that is to say, while perfect and unimpaired. Take the words in your precise sense, and tell me whether I am not right. Yes, clearly. Then medicine does not consider the interest of medicine, but the interest of the body. True, he said. Nor does the art of horsemanship consider the interests of the art of horsemanship, but the interests of the horse. Neither do any other arts care for themselves, for they have no needs. They care only for that which is the subject of their art. "'True,' he said. "'But surely, Thrasymachus, "'the arts are the superiors and rulers "'of their own subjects.' "'To this he assented with a good deal of reluctance. "'Then,' I said, "'no science or art considers or enjoins "'the interest of the stronger or superior, "'but only the interest of the subjects and the weaker.' "'He made an attempt to contest this proposition also, "'but finally acquiesced. "'Then,' I continued, no physician in so far as he is a physician considers his own good and what he prescribes but the good of his patient for the true physician is also a ruler having the human body as a subject and he is not a mere money-maker that has been admitted yes and the pilot likewise in the strict sense of the term is a ruler of sailors and not a mere sailor that has been admitted and such a pilot and ruler will provide and prescribe for the interest of the sailor who is under him, and not for his own or the ruler's interest. He gave a reluctant yes," then I said, Thrasymachus, there is no one in any rule who, in so far as he is a ruler, considers or enjoins what is for his own interest, but always what is for the interest of his subject or suitable to his art. To that he looks,
0: and that alone he considers in everything which he says and does. End of part one. Book one, part two of The Republic by Plato. This LibriVox
1: recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neefeld. When we had got to this point in the argument, and every one saw that the definition of justice had been completely upset, Trasymachus, instead of replying to me, said, Tell me, Socrates, have you got a nurse? Why do you ask such a question, I said, when you ought rather to be answering? Because she leaves you to snivel, and never wipes your nose. She has not even taught you to know the shepherd from the sheep. "'What makes you say that?' I replied. "'Because you fancy that the shepherd or neat-herd fattens or tends the sheep or oxen with a view to their own good, and not to the good of himself or his master. And you further imagine that the rulers of states, if they are true rulers, never think of their subjects as sheep, and that they are not studying their own advantage day and night. Oh, no!' and so entirely astray are you in your ideas about the just and unjust as not even to know that justice and the just are in reality another's good that is to say the interest of the ruler and stronger and the loss of the subject and the servant and injustice the opposite for the unjust is lord over the truly simple and just he is the stronger and his subjects do what is for his interests and minister to his happiness which is very far from being their own. Consider further, most foolish Socrates, that the just is always a loser in comparison with the unjust. First of all, in private contracts, wherever the unjust is the partner of the just you will find that when the partnership is dissolved the unjust man has always more and the just less. Secondly, in their dealings with the state, when there is an income tax, the just man will pay more and the unjust less on the same amount of income and when there is anything to be received the one gains nothing and the other much observe also what happens when they take an office there is the just man neglecting his affairs and perhaps suffering other losses and getting nothing out of the public because he is just moreover he is hated by his friends and acquaintances for refusing to serve them in unlawful ways but all this is reversed in the case of the unjust man i am speaking as before of injustice on a large scale in which the advantage of the unjust is most apparent and my meaning will be most clearly seen if we turn to that highest form of injustice in which the criminal is the happiest of men and sufferers or those who refuse to do injustice are the most miserable that is to say tyranny which by fraud and force takes away the property of others not little by little but wholesale comprehending in one things sacred as well as profane private and public for which acts of wrong if he were detected perpetrating any of them singly he would be punished and incur great disgrace they who do such wrong in particular cases are called robbers of temples and man-stealers and burglars and swindlers and thieves but when a man besides taking away the money of the citizens has made slaves of them then instead of these names of reproach he is termed happy and blessed and not only by the citizens but by all who hear of his having achieved the consummation of injustice for mankind censure injustice fearing that they may be the victims of it and not because they shrink from committing it and thus i have shown socrates injustice when on a sufficient scale has more strength and freedom and mastery than justice and as i said at first justice is the interest of the stronger whereas injustice is a man's own profit and interest Trasimachus, when he had thus spoken, having like a bathman deluged our ears with his words, had a mind to go away. But the company would not let him. They insisted that he should remain and defend his position, and I myself added my own humble request that he would not leave us. Trismachus, I said to him, Excellent man, how suggestive are your remarks? And are you going to run away before you have fairly taught and learned whether they are true or not? is the attempt to determine the way of man's life so small a matter in your eyes to determine how life may be passed by each one of us to the greatest advantage and do i differ from you he said as to the importance of the inquiry you appear rather i replied to have no care or thought about us Thrasymachus, whether we live better or worse from not knowing what you say you know is to you a matter of indifference pray thee friend do not keep your knowledge to yourself we are a large party and any benefit which you confer upon us will be amply rewarded for my own part i openly declare that i am not convinced and that i do not believe in justice to be more gainful than justice even if uncontrolled and allowed to have free play For, granting that there may be an unjust man who is able to commit injustice either by fraud or force, still this does not convince me of the superior advantage of injustice, and there may be others who are in the same predicament as myself. Perhaps we may be wrong. If so, you, in your wisdom, should convince us that we are mistaken in preferring justice to injustice. And how am I to convince you, he said? If you are not already convinced by what I have just said, what more can I do for you? Would you have me put the proof bodily into your souls? Heaven forbid, I said. I would only ask you to be consistent, or if you change, change openly and let there be no deception. For I must remark, thrasymachus, if you will recall what was previously said, that although you began by defining the true physician in an exact sense, you do not observe a like exactness when speaking of the shepherd. You thought that the shepherd, as a shepherd, tends the sheep not with a view to their own good, but more like a diner or banqueter with a view to the pleasures of the table, or, again, as a trader for sale in the market, and not as a shepherd. Yet surely the art of the shepherd is concerned only with the good of his subjects. He has only to provide the best for them, since the perfection of the art is already ensured whenever all the requirements of it are satisfied. And that was what I was saying just now about the ruler. I conceive that the art of the ruler, considered as ruler, whether in a state or in private life, can only regard the good of his flock or subjects, whereas you seem to think that the rulers in states, that is to say, the true rulers, like being in authority. Think? Nay, I am sure of it. Then why, in the case of lesser offices, do men never take them willingly without payment, unless under the idea that they govern for the advantage not of themselves but of others? Let me ask you a question. Are not the several arts different, by reason of their each having a separate function, and my dear illustrious friend do say what you think that we may make a little progress yes that is the difference he replied and each art gives us a particular good and not merely a general one medicine for example gives us health navigation safety at sea and so on yes he said and the art of payments has the special function of giving pay but we do not confuse this with other arts any more than the art of the pilot is to be confused with the art of medicine, because the health of the pilot may be improved by a sea voyage. You would not be inclined to say, would you, that navigation is the art of medicine, at least if we are to adopt your exact use of language? Certainly not. Or, because a man is in good health when he receives pay, you would not say that the art of payment is medicine. I should not." "'Nor would you say that medicine is the art of receiving pay, because a man takes fees when he is engaged in healing?' "'Certainly not.' "'And we have admitted, I said, that the good of each art is specially confined to the art?' "'Yes.' "'Then, if there be any good which all artists have in common, that is to be attributed to something of which they all have the common use?' "'True,' he replied and when the artist is benefited by receiving pay the advantage is gained by an additional use of the art of pay which is not the art professed by him he gave a reluctant assent to this then the pay is not derived by the several artists from their respective arts but the truth is that while the art of medicine gives health and the art of the builder builds a house another art attends them which is the art of pay The various arts may be doing their own business, and benefiting that over which they preside. But would the artist receive any benefit from his art unless he were paid as well? I suppose not. But does he therefore confer no benefit when he works for nothing? Certainly he confers a benefit. Then now, Trasymachus, there is no longer any doubt that neither arts nor governments provide for their own interests but, as we were before saying, they rule and provide for the interests of their subjects, who are the weaker and not the stronger, to their good they attend, and not to the good of the superior. And this is the reason, my dear Trasymachus, why, as I was just now saying, no one is willing to govern, because no one likes to take in hand the reformation of evils which are not his concern, without remuneration." For in the execution of his work, and in giving his orders to another, the true artist does not regard his own interest, but always that of his subjects, and therefore, in order that rulers may be willing to rule, they must be paid in one of three modes of payment—money, or honor, or a penalty for refusing. "'What do you mean, Socrates?' said Glaucon the first two modes of payment are intelligible enough but what the penalty is i do not understand and how a penalty can be a payment you mean that you do not understand the nature of this payment which to the best men is the great inducement to rule of course you know that ambition and avarice are held to be as indeed they are a disgrace very true and for this reason i said money and honor have no attraction for them good men do not wish to be openly demanding payment for governing and so to get the name of hirelings nor by secretly helping themselves out of the public revenues to get the name of thieves and not being ambitious they do not care about honour wherefore necessity must be laid upon them and they must be induced to serve from the fear of punishment and this as i imagine is the reason why the forwardness to take office instead of waiting to be compelled has been deemed dishonorable now the worst part of the punishment is that he who refuses to rule is liable to be ruled by one who is worse than himself and the fear of this as i conceive induces the good to take office not because they would but because they cannot help not under the idea that they are going to have any benefit or enjoyment themselves but as a necessity and because they are not to commit the task of ruling to any one who is better than themselves or indeed as good for there is reason to think that if a city were composed entirely of good men then to avoid office would be as much an object of contention as to obtain offices at present then we should have plain proof that the true ruler is not meant by nature to regard his own interest but that of his subjects and every one who knew this would choose rather to receive a benefit from another than to have the trouble of conferring one so far am i from agreeing with thrasymachus that justice is the interest of the stronger this latter question need not be further discussed at present But when Trasymachus says that the life of the unjust is more advantageous than that of the just, his new statement appears to me to be of a far more serious character. Which of us has spoken truly, and which sort of life, Glaucon, do you prefer? I, for my part, deem the life of the just to be the more advantageous, he answered. Do you hear all the advantages of the unjust which Trasymachus was rehearsing? Yes, I heard him, he replied, but he has not convinced me. Then shall we try to find some way of convincing him, if we can, that he is saying what is not true? Most certainly, he replied. If, I said, he makes a set speech, and we make another, recounting all the advantages of being just, and he answers, and we rejoin, There must be a numbering and measuring of the goods which are claimed on either side, and in the end we shall want judges to decide. But if we proceed in our inquiry as we lately did, by making admissions to one another, we shall unite the offices of judge and advocate in our own persons. Very good, he said. And which method do I understand you to prefer, I said? That which you propose. "'Well then, Trasymachus,' I said, "'suppose you begin at the beginning and answer me. You say that perfect injustice is more gainful than perfect justice.' "'Yes, that is what I say, and I have given you my reasons.' "'And what is your view about them? Would you call one of them virtue and the other vice?' "'Certainly. I suppose that you would call justice virtue and injustice vice. What a charming notion!' So likely, too, seeing that I affirm injustice to be profitable and justice not. What else, then, would you say? The opposite, he replied. And would you call justice vice? No, I would rather say sublime simplicity. Then would you call injustice malignity? No, I would rather say discretion. And do the unjust appear to you to be wise and good? Yes, he said at any rate those of them who are able to be perfectly unjust and who have the power of subduing states and nations but perhaps you imagine me to be talking of cut-purses even this profession if undetected has advantages though they are not to be compared with those of which i was just now speaking i do not think that i misapprehend your meaning trasymachus i replied but still i cannot hear without amazement that you class injustice with wisdom and virtue and justice with the opposite certainly i do so class them now i said you are on more substantial and almost unanswerable ground for if the injustice which you were maintaining to be profitable had been admitted by you as by others to be vice and deformity an answer might have been given to you on received principles. But now I perceive that you will call injustice honorable and strong, and to the unjust you will attribute all the qualities which are attributed by us before to the just, seeing that you do not hesitate to rank injustice with wisdom and virtue. You have guessed most infallibly," he replied then i certainly ought not to shrink from going through the argument so long as i have reason to think that you trasymachus are speaking your real mind for i do believe that you are now in earnest and are not amusing yourself at our expense i may be in earnest or not but what is that to you to refute the argument is your business very true i said that is what i have to do but will you be so good as to answer yet one more question? Does the just man try to gain any advantage over the just? Far otherwise. If he did, he would not be the simple, amusing creature which he is. And would he try to go beyond just action? He would not. And how would he regard the attempt to gain an advantage over the unjust? Would that be considered by him as just or unjust? He would think it just and would try to gain the advantage, but he would not be able. Whether he would or would not be able, I said, is not the point. My question is only whether the just man, while refusing to have more than another just man, would wish and claim to have more than the unjust. Yes, he would. And what of the unjust? Does he claim to have more than the just man and to do more than is just? Of course he said, for he claims to have more than all men. And the unjust man will strive and struggle to obtain more than the unjust man or action, in order that he may have more than all? True. We may put the matter thus, I said, the just does not desire more than his like, but more than his unlike, whereas the unjust desires more than both his like and his unlike nothing he said can be better than that statement and the unjust is good and wise and the just is neither good again he said and is not the unjust like the wise and good and the just unlike them of course he said he who is of a certain nature is like those who are of a certain nature he who is not not each of them i said is such as his like is ''Certainly,'' he replied. ''Very good, Thrasymachus, I said. ''And now, to take the case of the arts, you would admit that one man is a musician and another not a musician?'' ''Yes.'' ''And which is wise and which is foolish?'' ''Clearly the musician is wise, and he who is not a musician is foolish.'' ''And he is good in as far as he is wise and bad in as far as he is foolish?'' ''Yes.'' And you would say the same sort of thing of the physician? Yes. And do you think, my excellent friend, that a musician, when he adjusts the lyre, would desire or claim to exceed or go beyond a musician in the tightening and loosening the strings? I do not think that he would. But he would claim to exceed the non-musician? Of course. And what would you say of the physician? In prescribing meats and drinks, would he wish to go beyond another physician or beyond the practice of medicine? He would not. But he would wish to go beyond the non-physician. Yes. And about knowledge and ignorance in general, see whether you think that any man who has knowledge ever would wish to have the choice of saying or doing more than another man who has knowledge. Would he not rather say or do the same as his like in the same case? that i suppose could hardly be denied and what of the ignorant would he not desire to have more than either the knowing or the ignorant i dare say and the knowing is wise yes and the wise is good true then the wise and good will not desire to gain more than his like but more than his unlike and opposite i suppose so whereas the bad and ignorant will desire to gain more than both yes but did we not say trisymachus that the unjust goes beyond both his like and unlike were not these your words they were and you also said that the just will not go beyond his like but his unlike yes then the just is like the wise and good and the unjust like the evil and ignorant that is the inference and each of them is such as his like is that was admitted. Then the just has turned out to be wise and good, and the unjust evil and ignorant. Trasymachus made all these admissions, not fluently, as I repeat them, but with extreme reluctance. It was a hot summer's day, and the perspiration poured from him in torrents. And then I saw what I had never seen before, Trasymachus blushing, As we were now agreed that justice was virtue and wisdom, and injustice vice and ignorance, I proceeded to another point. "'Well,' I said, "'Crisymachus, that matter is now settled. But were we not also saying that injustice had strength, do you remember?' "'Yes, I remember,' he said. "'But do not suppose that I approve of what you are saying, or have no answer.' if however i were to answer you would be quite certain to accuse me of haranguing therefore either permit me to have my say out or if you would rather ask do so and i will answer very good as they say to story-telling old women and will nod yes and no certainly not i said if contrary to your real opinion yes he said I will, to please you, since you will not let me speak. What else would you have?' "'Nothing in the world,' I said. "'And if you are so disposed, I will ask, and you shall answer.' "'Proceed. Then I will repeat the question which I asked before, in order that our examination of the relative nature of justice and injustice may be carried on regularly.' A statement was made that injustice is stronger and more powerful than justice. But now justice, having been identified with wisdom and virtue, is easily shown to be stronger than injustice, if injustice is ignorance. This can no longer be questioned by any one. But I want to view the matter, Trasymachus, in a different way you would not deny that a state may be unjust and may be unjustly attempting to enslave other states or may have already enslaved them and may be holding many of them in subjection true he replied and i will add that the best and most perfectly unjust state would be most likely to do so i know i said that such was your position but what i would further consider is whether this power which is possessed by the superior state can exist or be exercised without justice or only with justice if you are right in your view and justice is wisdom then only with justice but if i am right then without justice i am delighted trasymachus to see you not only nodding assent and dissent but making answers which are quite excellent that is out of civility to you, he replied. You are very kind, I said. And would you have the goodness also to inform me whether you think that a state, or an army, or a band of robbers and thieves, or any other gang of ill-doers, could act at all if they injured one another? No, indeed, he said, they could not. But if they abstained from injuring one another, then they might act together better? Yes and this is because injustice creates divisions and hatreds and fighting and justice imparts harmony and friendship is not that true trasymachus i agree he said because i do not wish to quarrel with you how good of you i said but i should like to know also whether injustice having this tendency to arouse hatred wherever existing among slaves or among freemen will not make them hate one another and set them at variance and render them incapable of common action? Certainly. And even if injustice be found in two only, will they not quarrel and fight and become enemies to one another and to the just? They will. And suppose injustice abiding in a single person, would your wisdom say that she loses or that she retains her natural power? Let us assume that she retains her power yet is not the power which injustice exercises of such a nature that wherever she takes up her abode whether in a city in an army in a family or in any other body that body is to begin with rendered incapable of united action by reason of sedition and distraction and does it not become its own enemy and at variance with all that opposes it and with the just is not this the case Yes, certainly, and is not injustice equally fatal when existing in a single person? In the first place, rendering him incapable of action because he is not at unity with himself, and in the second place, making him an enemy to himself and the just. Is not that true, Trasymachus? Yes. And, oh, my friend, I said, surely the gods are just? Granted that they are but if so the unjust will be the enemy of the gods and the just will be their friend feast away in triumph and take your fill of the argument i will not oppose you lest i should displease the company well then proceed with your answers and let me have the remainder of my repast for we have already shown that the just are clearly wiser and better and abler than the unjust and that the unjust are incapable of common action nay more that to speak as we did of men who are evil acting at any time vigorously together is not strictly true for if they had been perfectly evil they would have laid hands upon one another but it is evident that there must have been some remnant of justice in them which enabled them to combine if there had not been they would have injured one another as well as their victims they were but half-villains in their enterprises, for had they been whole villains and utterly unjust they would have been utterly incapable of action. That, as I believe, is the truth of the matter, and not what you said at first. But whether the just have a better and happier life than the unjust is a further question which we also propose to consider. I think that they have, and for the reasons which I have given. But still... I should like to examine further, for no light matter is at stake, nothing less than the rule of human life. Proceed. I will proceed, by asking a question. Would you not say that a horse has some end? I should. And the end or use of a horse or of anything would be that which could not be accomplished, or not so well accomplished, by any other thing? I do not understand, he said. Let me explain. Can you see, except with the eye? Certainly not. Or hear, except with the ear? No. These, then, may be truly said to be the ends of these organs. They may. But you can cut off a vine branch with a dagger or with a chisel, and in many other ways. Of course. And yet not so well as with a pruning-hook, made for the purpose. True. May we not say that this is the end of a pruning-hook? We may. Then now I think you will have no difficulty in understanding my meaning when I asked the question whether the end of anything would be that which could not be accomplished, or not so well accomplished, by any other thing. I understand your meaning, he said, and assent. And that to which an end is appointed has also an excellence need i ask again whether the eye has an end it has and has not the eye an excellence yes and the ear has an end and an excellence also true and the same is true of all other things they have each of them an end and a special excellence that is so well and can the eyes fulfil their end if they are wanting in their own proper excellence and have a defect instead how can they he said if they are blind and cannot see You mean to say, if they have lost their proper excellence, which is sight? But I have not arrived at that point yet. I would rather ask the question more generally, and only inquire whether the things which fulfill their ends fulfill them by their own proper excellence, and fail of fulfilling them by their own defect. Certainly, he replied. I might say the same of the ears. When deprived of their own proper excellence, they cannot fulfill their end true and the same observation will apply to all other things i agree well and has not the soul an end which nothing else can fulfil for example to superintend and command and deliberate and the like are not these functions proper to the soul and can they rightly be assigned to any other to no other and is not life to be reckoned among the ends of the soul assuredly he said and has not the soul an excellence also? Yes. And can she, or can she not, fulfill her own ends when deprived of that excellence? She cannot. Then an evil soul must necessarily be an evil ruler and superintendent, and the good soul a good ruler? Yes, necessarily. And we have admitted that justice is the excellence of the soul, and injustice the defect of the soul? That has been admitted. Then, the just soul and the just man will live well, and the unjust man will live ill. That is what your argument proves. And he who lives well is blessed and happy, and he who lives ill the reverse of happy? Certainly. Then the just is happy, and the unjust miserable? So be it. But happiness, and not misery, is profitable? Of course then my blessed trasymachus injustice can never be more profitable than justice let this socrates he said be your entertainment at the Bendidia. for which i am indebted to you i said now that you have grown gentle towards me and have left off scolding nevertheless i have not been well entertained but that was my own fault not yours as an epicure snatches a taste of every dish which is successively brought to table he not having allowed himself time to enjoy the one before so have i gone from one subject to another without having discovered what i sought at first the nature of justice i left that inquiry and turned away to consider whether justice is virtue and wisdom or evil and folly and when there arose a further question about the comparative advantages of justice and injustice I could not refrain from passing on to that. And the result of the whole discussion has been that I know nothing at all, for I know not what justice is, and therefore I am not likely to know whether it is or is not a virtue, nor can I say whether the just man is
0: happy or unhappy. Book one. book two part one of the republic
1: by plato this librivox recording is in the public domain read by bob with these words i was thinking that i had made an end to the discussion but the end in truth proved only to be a beginning for glaucon who was always the most pugnacious of men was dissatisfied at trisymachus's retirement he wanted to have the battle out So he said to me, Socrates, do you wish really to persuade us, or only to seem to have persuaded us, that to be just is always better than to be unjust? I should wish really to persuade you, I replied, if I could. Then you certainly have not succeeded. Let me ask you now, how would you arrange goods? Are there not some which we welcome for their own sakes, and independently of their consequences, as for example harmless pleasures and enjoyments which delight us at the time although nothing follows from them i agree in thinking there is such a class i replied is there not also a second class of goods such as knowledge sight or health which are desirable not only in themselves but also for their results certainly i said and would you not recognize a third class such as gymnastic and the care of the sick and the physician's art also the various ways of money-making these do us good but we regard them as disagreeable and no one would choose them for their own sakes but only for the sake of some reward or result which flows from them there is i said this third class also but why do you ask because i want to know in which of the three classes you would place justice in the highest class i replied among those goods which he who would be happy desires both for their own sake and for the sake of their results then the many are of another mind they think the justice is to be reckoned in the troublesome class among goods which are to be pursued for the sake of rewards and of reputation but in themselves are disagreeable and rather to be avoided. I know, I said, that this is their manner of thinking, and that this was the thesis which Thrasymachus was maintaining just now, when he censured justice and praised injustice. But I am too stupid to be convinced by him. I wish, he said, that you should hear me as well as him, and then I shall see whether you and I agree for trasimachus seems to me like a snake to have been charmed by your voice sooner than he ought to have been but to my mind the nature of justice and injustice have not yet been made clear setting aside their rewards and results i want to know what they are in themselves and how they inwardly work in the soul If you please, then, I will revive the argument of Trasemachus, and first I will speak of the nature and origin of justice according to the common view of them. Secondly, I will show that all men who practice justice do so against their will of necessity, but not as a good. And thirdly, i will argue that there is reason in this view for the life of the unjust is after all better far than the life of the just if what they say is true socrates since i myself am not of their opinion but still i acknowledge that i am perplexed when i hear the voices of trisymachus and myriads of others dinning in my ears and on the other hand i have never yet heard the superiority of justice to injustice maintained by any one in a satisfactory way i want to hear justice praised in respect of itself then i shall be satisfied and you are the person from whom i think that i am most likely to hear this and therefore i will praise the unjust life to the utmost of my power and my manner of speaking will indicate the manner in which i desire to hear you too praising justice and censuring injustice will you say whether you approve of my proposal indeed i do nor can i imagine any theme about which a man of sense would oftener wish to converse i am delighted he replied to hear you say so and shall begin by speaking as i proposed of the nature and origin of justice they say that to do injustice is by nature good to suffer injustice evil but that the evil is greater than the good and so when men have both done and suffered injustice and have had experience of both not being able to avoid the one and obtain the other they think that they had better agree among themselves to have neither hence there arise laws and mutual covenants And that which is ordained by law is termed by them lawful and just. Thus they affirm to be the origin and nature of justice. It is a mean or compromise between the best of all, which is to do injustice and not be punished, and the worst of all, which is to suffer injustice without the power of retaliation. And justice, being at a middle point between the two, is tolerated not as a good but as the lesser evil and honored by reason of the inability of men to do injustice. For no man who is worthy to be called a man would ever submit to such an agreement if he were able to resist. He would be mad if he did. Such is the received account, Socrates, of the nature and origin of justice. Now that those who practice justice do so involuntarily, and because they have not the power to be unjust, will best appear if we imagine something of this kind having given both to the just and the unjust power to do what they will, let us watch and see whither desire will lead them. Then we shall discover in the very act the just and unjust man to be proceeding along the same road, following their interests, which all natures deem to be their good, and are only diverted into the path of justice by the force of law." The liberty which we are supposing may be most completely given to them in the form of such a power as is said to have been possessed by Gyges, the ancestor of Croesus, the Lydian. According to the tradition, Gyges was a shepherd in the service of the king of Lydia. There was a great storm, and an earthquake made an opening in the earth at the place where he was feeding his flock. Amazed at the sight, he descended into the opening, where, among other marvels, he beheld a hollow brazen horse, having doors, at which he, stooping and looking in, saw a dead body of stature, as appeared to him, more than human, and having nothing on but a gold ring. This he took from the finger of the dead, and reascended. Now the shepherds met together according to custom that they might send their monthly report about the flocks to the king. Into their assembly he came, having the ring on his finger and as he was sitting among them, he chanced to turn the collet of the ring inside his hand, when instantly he became invisible to the rest of the company, and they began to speak of him as if he were no longer present. He was astonished at this, and again touching the ring he turned the collet outwards and reappeared. He made several trials of the ring, and always with the same result. When he turned the collet inwards he became invisible when outwards he reappeared. Whereupon he contrived to be chosen one of the messengers who was sent to the court, whereas soon as he arrived he seduced the queen, and with her help conspired against the king and slew him and took the kingdom. Suppose now that there were two such magic rings, and the just put on one of them and the unjust the other no man can be imagined to be of such an iron nature that he would stand fast in justice no man would keep his hands off what was not his own when he could safely take what he liked out of the market or go into houses and lie with any one at his pleasure or kill or release from prison whom he would and in all respects be like god among men then the actions of the just would be as the actions of the unjust they would both come at last to the same point And this we may truly affirm to be a great proof that a man is just, not willingly, or because he thinks that justice is any good to him individually, but of necessity, for wherever any one thinks that he can safely be unjust, there he is unjust. For all men believe in their hearts that injustice is far more profitable to the individual than justice, and he who argues, as I have been supposing, will say that they are right. If you could imagine any one obtaining this power of becoming invisible, and never doing any wrong or touching what was another's, he would be thought by the lookers-on to be a most wretched idiot, although they would praise him to one another's faces, and keep up appearances with one another from a fear that they too might suffer injustice. Enough of this. Now... If we are to form a real judgment of the life of the just and unjust, we must isolate them. There is no other way. And how is the isolation to be effected? I answer, let the unjust man be entirely unjust, and the just man entirely just. Nothing is to be taken away from either of them, and both are to be perfectly furnished for the work of their respective lives. First. Let the unjust be like other distinguished masters of craft, like the skilful pilot or physician, who knows intuitively his own powers and keeps within their limits, and who, if he fails at any point, is able to recover himself. So let the unjust make his unjust attempts in the right way, and lie hidden if he means to be great in his injustice. He who is found out is nobody. For the highest reach of injustice is to be deemed just when you are not. Therefore I say that in the perfectly unjust man we must assume the most perfect injustice. There is to be no deduction, but we must allow him, while doing the most unjust acts, to have acquitted the greatest reputation for justice. If he have taken a false step he must be able to recover himself, he must be one who can speak with effect if any of his deeds come to light, and who can force his way where force is required by his courage and strength and command of money and friends. And at his side let us place the just man in his nobleness and simplicity, wishing, as Aeschylus says, to be and not to seem good. There must be no seeming, for if he seem to be just he will be honored and rewarded, And then we shall not know whether he is just for the sake of justice or for the sake of honours and rewards. Therefore, let him be clothed in justice only, and have no other covering, and he must be imagined in a state of life the opposite of the former. Let him be the best of men, and let him be thought the worst, then he will have been put to the proof, and we shall see whether he will be affected by the fear of infamy and its consequences, and let him continue thus to the hour of death being just and seeming to be unjust when both have reached the utmost extreme the one of justice and the other of injustice let judgment be given which of them is the happier of the two heavens my dear glaucon i said how energetically you polish them up for the decision first one then the other as if they were two statues "'I do my best,' he said. "'And now that we know what they are like, there is no difficulty in tracing out the sort of life which awaits either of them. This I will proceed to describe. But as you may think the description a little too coarse, I ask you to suppose, Socrates, that the words which follow are not mine. Let me put them into the mouths of the eulogists of injustice.' They will tell you that the just man who is thought unjust will be scourged, racked, bound, will have his eyes burnt out, and at last, after suffering every kind of evil, he will be impaled. Then he will understand that he ought to seem only and not to be just. The words of Aeschylus may be more truly spoken of the unjust than of the just, for the unjust is pursuing a reality. He does not live with a view to appearance. He wants to be really unjust, and not to seem only. His mind has a soil deep and fertile, out of which spring his prudent counsels. In the first place he is thought just, and therefore bears rule in the city. He can marry whom he will, and give in marriage to whom he will. Also he can trade and deal where he likes, and always to his own advantage, because he has no misgivings about injustice and at every contest whether in public or private he gets the better of his antagonists and gains at their expense and he is rich and out of his gains he can benefit his friends and harm his enemies moreover he can offer sacrifices and dedicate gifts to the gods abundantly and magnificently and can honour the gods or any man whom he wants to honour in a far better style than the just and therefore he is likely to be dearer than they are to the gods and thus Socrates, gods, and men are said to unite in making the life of the unjust better than the life of the just. I was going to say something in answer to Glaucon, when Arimantus, his brother, interposed. Socrates, he said, do you not suppose that there is nothing more to be urged? Why, what else is there? I answered. Oh, the strongest point of all has not even been mentioned, he replied well then according to the proverb let brother help brother if he fails in any part do you assist him although i must confess that glaucon has already said quite enough to lay me in the dust and take from me the power of helping justice nonsense he replied but let me add something more there is another side to glaucon's argument about the praise and censure of justice and injustice which is equally required in order to bring out what i believe to be his meaning parents and tutors are always telling their sons and their wards that they are to be just but why not for the sake of justice but for the sake of character and reputation in the hope of obtaining for him who is reputed just some of these offices marriages and the like which glaucon has enumerated among the advantages accruing to the unjust from the reputation of justice more however is made of appearances by this class of persons than by the others for they throw in the good opinion of the gods and will tell you of a shower of benefits which the heavens as they say rain upon the pious and this accords with the testimony of the noble hesiod and homer the first of whom says that the gods make the oaks of the just to bear acorns at their summit and bees in the middle and the sheep are bowed down with the weight of their fleeces and many other blessings of a like kind are provided for them and homer has a very similar strain for he speaks of one whose fame is as the fame of some blameless king who like a god maintains justice to whom the black earth brings forth wheat and barley whose trees are bound with fruit and his sheep never fail to bear and the sea gives him fish Still grander are the gifts of heaven which Musius and his son vouchsafe to the just. They take them down into the world below, where they have the saints lying on couches at a feast, everlastingly drunk, crowned with garlands. Their idea seems to be that an immortality of drunkenness is the highest meed of virtue. Some extend their rewards yet further. The posterity, as they say, of the faithful and just shall survive to the third and fourth generation. This is the style in which they praise justice. But about the wicked there is another strain. They bury them in a slough at Hades, and make them carry water in a sieve. Also, while they are yet living, they bring them to infamy, and inflict upon them the punishments which Glaucon described as the portion of the just who are reputed to be unjust. Nothing else does their invention supply. Such is the manner of praising the one and censuring the other once more socrates i will ask you to consider another way of speaking about justice and injustice which is not confined to the poets but is found in prose writers the universal voice of mankind is always declaring that justice and virtue are honourable but grievous and toilsome and that the pleasures of vice and injustice are easy of attainment and are only censured by law and opinion they say also that honesty is for the most part less profitable than dishonesty and they are quite ready to call wicked men happy and to honour them both in public and private when they are rich or in any other way influential while they despise and overlook those who may be weak and poor even though acknowledging them to be better than the others but most extraordinary of all is their mode of speaking about virtue and the gods They say that the gods apportion calamity and misery to many good men, and good and happiness to the wicked. The mendicant prophets go to rich men's doors and persuade them that they have a power committed to them by the gods, of making an atonement for man's own or his ancestors' sins by sacrifices or charms, with rejoicings and feasts. And they promise to harm an enemy, whether just or unjust, at a small cost with magic arts and incantations binding heaven as they say to execute their will and the poets are the authorities to whom they appeal now smoothing the path of vice with the words of hesiod vice may be had in abundance without trouble the way is smooth and her dwelling-place is near but before virtue the gods have set toil and a tedious and uphill road then citing homer as a witness that the gods may be influenced by men for he also says the gods too may be turned from their purpose and men pray to them and avert their wrath by sacrifices and soothing entreaties and by libations and the odor of fat when they have sinned and transgressed and they produce a host of books written by musaeus and orpheus who were children of the moon and the muses that is what they say according to which they perform their ritual, and persuade not only individuals, but whole cities, that expiations and atonements for sin may be made by sacrifices and amusements which fill a vacant hour, and are equally at the service of the living and the dead, the latter sort they call mysteries, and they redeem us from the pains of hell. But if we neglect them, no one knows what awaits us." He proceeded, and now, When the young hear all this said about virtue and vice, and the way in which gods and men regard them, how are their minds likely to be affected, my dear Socrates? Those of them, I mean, who are quick-witted, and, like bees on the wing, light on every flower, and from all that they hear are prone to draw conclusions as to what manner of persons they should be, and in what way they should walk, if they would make the best of life. Probably the youth will say to himself, in the words of Pindar, Can I by justice or by crooked ways of deceit ascend a loftier tower which may be a fortress to me all my days? For what men say is that if I am really just and not also thought just, profit there is none; but the pain and loss on the other hand are unmistakable. But if, though unjust, I acquire the reputation of justice, a heavenly life is promised to me. Since then, as philosophers prove, appearance tyrannizes over truth and is lord of happiness to appearance I must devote myself. I will describe around me a picture and shadow of virtue to be the vestibule and exterior of my house. Behind I will trail the subtle and crafty fox as Archilochus, greatest of sages, recommends. But I hear some one exclaiming that the concealment of wickedness is often difficult, to which I answer, nothing great is easy. Nevertheless, the argument indicates this, if we would be happy, to be the path along which we should proceed. With a view to concealment we will establish secret brotherhoods and political clubs, and there are professors of rhetoric who teach the art of persuading courts and assemblies, and so, partly by persuasion and partly by force, I shall make unlawful gains and not be punished. Still I hear a voice saying that the gods cannot be deceived, neither can they be compelled. But what if there are no gods? Or suppose them to have no care of human things? Why in either case should I mind about concealment?" and even if there are gods and they do care about us, what yet we know of them only from tradition and the genealogies of the poets, and these are the very persons who say that they may be influenced and turned by sacrifices and soothing entreaties and by offerings. Let us be consistent then, and believe both or neither. If the poets speak truly, why then we had better be unjust and offer the fruits of injustice, For if we are just, although we may escape the vengeance of heaven, we shall lose the gains of injustice. But if we are unjust, we shall keep the gains, and by our sinning and praying and praying and sinning, the gods will be propitiated, and we shall not be punished. But there is a world below in which either we or our posterity will suffer for unjust deeds. Yes, my friend, will be the reflection but there are mysteries and atoning deities, and these have great power. This is what mighty cities declare, and the children of the gods, who were their poets and prophets, bear a like testimony. On what principle, then, shall we any longer choose justice rather than the worst injustice, when, if we only unite the latter with a deceitful regard to appearances, We shall fare to our mind, both with gods and men, in life and after death, as the most numerous and the highest authorities tell us. Knowing all this, Socrates, how can a man who has any superiority of mind or person or rank or wealth be willing to honor justice, or indeed to refrain from laughing when he hears justice praised? and even if there should be some one who is able to disprove the truth of my words and who is satisfied that justice is best still he is not angry with the unjust but is very ready to forgive them because he also knows that men are not just of their own free will unless peradventure there be some one whom the divinity within him may have inspired with a hatred of injustice or who has attained knowledge of the truth but no other man he only blames injustice who owing to cowardice or age or some weakness has not the power of being unjust and this is proved by the fact that when he obtains the power he immediately becomes unjust as far as he can be the cause of all this socrates was indicated by us at the beginning of the argument when my brother and i told you how astonished we were to find that all of the professing panegyrists of justice beginning with the ancient heroes of whom any memorial has been preserved to us and ending with the men of our own time no one has ever blamed injustice or praised justice except with a view to the glories honours and benefits which flow from them no one has ever adequately described either in verse or prose the true essential nature of either of them abiding in the soul and invisible to any human or divine eye or shown that of all the things of a man's soul which he has within him justice is the greatest good and injustice the greatest evil had this been the universal strain had you sought to persuade us of this from our youth upwards we should not have been on the watch to keep one another from doing wrong but every one would have been his own watchman because afraid if he did wrong of harbouring in himself the greatest of evils I dare say that Trasymachus and others would seriously hold the language which I have been merely repeating, and words even stronger than these about justice and injustice, grossly as I conceive perverting their true nature. But I speak in this vehement manner as I must frankly confess to you, because I want to hear from you the opposite side, and I would ask you to show not only the superiority which justice has over injustice but what effect they have on the possessor of them which makes the one to be a good and the other an evil to him and please as glaucon requested of you to exclude reputations for unless you take away from each of them his true reputation and add on the false we shall say that you do not praise justice but the appearance of it we shall think that you are only exhorting us to keep injustice dark and that you really agree with trisymachus in thinking that justice is another's good and the interest of the stronger and that injustice is a man's own profit and interest though injurious to the weaker now as you have admitted that justice is one of that highest class of goods which are desired indeed for their results but in a far greater degree for their own sakes like sight, or hearing, or knowledge, or health, or any other real and natural and not merely conventional good, I would ask you in your praise of justice to regard one point only. I mean the essential good and evil which justice and injustice work in the possessors of them. Let us praise justice and censor injustice, magnifying the rewards and honors of the one and abusing the other that is a manner of arguing which coming from them i am ready to tolerate but from you who have spent your whole life in the consideration of this question unless i hear the contrary from your own lips i expect something better and therefore i say not only prove to us that justice is better than injustice but show what they either of them do to the possessor of them which makes the one to be a good and the other an evil whether seen or unseen by gods and men i have always admired the genius of glaucon and Adeimantus, but on hearing these words i was quite delighted and said sons of an illustrious father that was not a bad beginning of the elegiac verses which the admirer of glaucon made in honour of you after you had distinguished yourselves at the battle of megara sons of ariston he sang divine offspring of an illustrious hero. The epithet is very appropriate, for there is something truly divine in being able to argue, as you have done, for the superiority of injustice and remaining unconvinced by your own arguments. And I do believe that you are not convinced. This I infer from your general character, for had I judged you only from your speeches, I should have mistrusted you. But now... The greater my confidence in you, the greater is my difficulty in knowing what to say. For I am in a strait between two. On the one hand, I feel that I am unequal to the task, and my inability is brought home to me by the fact that you were not satisfied with the answer which I made to Trasymachus, proving, as I thought, the superiority which justice has over injustice. And yet I cannot refuse to help while breath and speech remain to me. I am afraid that there would be an impiety in being present when justice is evil spoken of and not lifting up a hand in her defence, and therefore I had best give such help as I can." Klaucan and the rest entreated me by all means not to let the question drop, but to proceed in the investigation. They wanted to arrive at the truth, first about the nature of justice and injustice, and secondly about their relative advantages i told them what i really thought that the enquiry would be of a serious nature and would require very good eyes seeing then i said that we are no great wits i think that we had better adopt a method which i may illustrate thus suppose that a short-sighted person had been asked by some one to read small letters from a distance and it occurred to some one else that they might be found in another place which was larger and in which the letters were larger if they were the same, and he could read the larger letters first, then proceed to the lesser, this would have been thought a rare piece of good fortune. "'Very true,' said Aramantis. "'But how does the illustration apply to our inquiry?' "'I will tell you,' I replied. "'Justice, which is the subject of our inquiry, is, as you know, sometimes spoken of as a virtue of an individual, and sometimes as the virtue of a state.' "'True?' he replied, and is not a state larger than an individual? It is. Then in the larger the quantity of justice is likely to be larger and more easily discernible. I propose, therefore, that we inquire into the nature of justice and injustice, first as they appear in the state, and secondly in the individual, proceeding from the greater to the lesser, and comparing them. That, he said, is an excellent proposal and if we imagine the state in process of creation we shall see the justice and injustice of the state in process of creation also i dare say when the state is completed there may be a hope that the object of our search will be more easily discovered yes far more easily but ought we to attempt to construct one i said for to do so as i am inclined to think will be a very serious task Reflect, therefore. I have reflected, said Aramuntis, and I am anxious that you should proceed. A state, I said, arises, as I conceive, out of the needs of mankind. No one is self-sufficing, but all of us have many wants. Can any other origin of a state be imagined? There can be no other. Then, as we have many wants, and many persons are needed to supply them, one takes a helper for one purpose and another for another. And when these partners and helpers are gathered together in one habitation, the body of inhabitants is termed a state. True, he said. And they exchange with one another, and one gives and another receives, under the idea that exchange will be for their good. Very true. Then, I said, let us begin and create in idea a state. And yet the true creator is necessity, who is the mother of our invention. Of course, he replied now the first and greatest of necessities is food which is the condition of life and existence certainly the second is a dwelling and the third clothing and the like true and now let us see how our city will be able to supply the great demand we may suppose that one man is a husbandman another a builder some one else a weaver shall we add to them a shoemaker or perhaps some other purveyor to our bodily wants quite right the barest notion of estate must include four or five men clearly and how will they proceed will each bring the result of his labors into a common stock the individual husbandman for example producing for four and laboring four times as long and as much as he need in the provision of food with which he supplies others as well as himself or will he have nothing to do with others and not be at the trouble of producing for them but provide for himself alone a fourth of the food in a fourth of the time, and in the remaining three-fourths of his time be employed in making a house, or a coat, or a pair of shoes, having no partnership with others, but supplying himself all his own wants. Adamantus thought that he should aim at producing food only, and not at producing everything. Probably, I replied, that would be the better way. And when I hear you say this, I am myself reminded that we are not all alike. There are diversities of natures among us which are adapted to different occupations. Very true. And will you have a work better done when the workman has many occupations, or when he has only one? When he has only one. Further, there can be no doubt that a work is spoilt when not done at the right time. No doubt for business is not disposed to wait until the doer of the business is at leisure, but the doer must follow up what he is doing and make the business his first object. He must. And if so, we must infer that all things are produced more plentifully and easily and of a better quality when one man does one thing which is natural to him and does it at the right time and leaves other things. Undoubtedly then more than four citizens will be required for the husbandman will not make his own plough or mattock or other implements of agriculture if they are to be good for anything neither will the builder make his tools and he too needs many and in like manner the weaver and the shoemaker true then carpenters and smiths and many other artisans will be sharers in our little state which is already beginning to grow True. Yet even if we add neatherds, shepherds, and other herdsmen, in order that our husbandmen may have oxen to plough with, and builders as well as husbandmen may have draught cattle, and couriers and weavers fleeces and hides, still our state will not be very large. That is true, yet neither will it be a very small state which contains all these. Then again there is the situation of the city to find a place where nothing need be imported is well-nigh impossible impossible then there must be another class of citizens who will bring the required supply from another city there must but if the trader goes empty-handed having nothing which they require who would supply his need he will come back empty-handed that is certain and therefore what they produce at home must not be only enough for themselves but such both in quantity and quality, as to accommodate those from whom their wants are supplied. Very true. Then more husbandmen and more artisans will be required. They will. Not to mention the importers and exporters, who are called merchants. Yes. Then we shall want merchants? We shall. And if merchandise is to be carried over the sea? Skillful sailors will also be needed, and in considerable numbers. Yes, in considerable numbers. Then, again, within the city, how will they exchange their productions? To secure such an exchange was, as you will remember, one of our principal objects when we formed them into a society and constituted a state. Clearly, they will buy and sell then they will need a market-place and a money-token for purposes of exchange. Certainly. Suppose now that a husbandman or an artisan brings some production to market, and he comes at a time when there is no one to exchange with him. Is he to leave his calling and set idle in the market-place? Not at all. He will find people there who, seeing the want, undertake the office of salesman. In well-ordered states, they are commonly those who are the weakest in bodily strength and therefore of little use for any other purpose their duty is to be in the market and to give money in exchange for goods to those who desire to sell and to take money from those who desire to buy this want then creates a class of retail traders in our state is not retailer the term which is applied to those who sit in the marketplace engaged in buying and selling while those who wander from one city to another are called merchants ''Yes,'' he said. ''And there is another class of servants who are intellectually hardly on the level of companionship. Still they have plenty of bodily strength for labor, which accordingly they sell, and are called, if I do not mistake, hirelings, hire being the name which is given to the price of their labor.'' ''True.'' ''Then hirelings will help to make up our population?'' ''Yes.'' and now adamantus is our state matured and perfected i think so where then is justice and where is injustice and in what part of the state did they spring up probably in the dealings of these citizens with one another i cannot imagine that they are more likely to be found anywhere else i dare say that you are right in your suggestion i said we had better think the matter out and not
0: shrink from the inquiry End of Book Two, Part One